Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Take two. This is episode 256. We're recording this live on August 25th, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by the wonderful Mr. Barry Kirby. Hey, uh, how are you doing? Hey, I am well. This is our second take of the intro, and it's is it is it going okay? It's great. I'm loving it. I'm just terrified in case I said anything out of place. Again. All right, leave it in. All right, we got a great show for y'all tonight. We're going to be uh, talking about how world population is going to surpass the eight billion threshold very soon, and later we're going to answer some questions from the community about following UX guides or carving your own path, networking to get ahead in your career, and making assumptions on users. But first, we have some programming notes or community update here. Barry, I have to know, what is the latest over at uh, 1202? Well, in 1202, people have been inspired by Bob Bridger and his insights into Human Factors books. As an author, and a put, and um, he's written a whole bunch of Human Factors books, and he's given us his, his insights on why to write them in the first place. And if you're using a publisher, how does that work? But also, what happens when you self-publish, and what does that what does that do for you? He gives us some really good insights into all of them processes, the fun around writing them, why you did it in the first place, but also, if you're a budding author, then some of the pitfalls to avoid. But on Monday, we have a new discussion going live, and that's with Susie Broadbent. And Susie is a fellow of the CIHF and delivered this year's Institute Lecture at EHF 2022. She gives a she talks with experience and passion about the practicalities of implementing good human factors, uh, good human factors practice, and really around where we have to make real life judgments about adopting the book methodology um, to make it to applying that to real world conditions. And so it's the real practical aspects of applying human factors. So that goes live live on Monday, and hopefully, Ebby will learn something new. Was Susie the one who caused a a stir? That's that's our Susie. Yes, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that one. All right. Well, we know why you're here. Let's get into the news. Yes, this is the wonderful part of the show, all about human factors news, where our listeners and patrons choose the story. Barry, what is the story this week? So the story this week is the world population is going to hit eight million, eight billion, sorry, any day now. The global population is set to to hit 8 billion people by November the 15th, 2022, according to the United Nations' latest population uh, population projections. The report also predicts 8.5 billion people by 2030, 9.7 billion by 2050, and 10.4 billion in 2100. Or in simple terms, a rapid slowdown in the explosive growth we've been seeing over the past century or so. Though we've known the population was going to hit this number since July of this year, the Wall Street Journal pointed out today that it's now essentially imminent, with it now being possible that the world will hit this giant round number any day now. Although the UN thinks we'll eventually cross the 10 billion mark, the WSJ argues that may not actually be the case. It's predicted that the education and increasing quality of life could actually drastically slow global fertility. There are really two big questions, they point out. Firstly, how rapid fertility will decline in Africa. And the other question is China and countries with very low fertility, if they will actually recover and how fast they will recover. As the population grows, it'll cause significant pain points. The most alarming might be the population bomb already being felt in some parts of the world, caused by a rapid ageing cohort without enough youngsters left over to care for them. The total population in the end is a meaningless number. It depends on what these people are able to do and what their skills are. 
and whether actually they've got enough to eat. So Nick, what are your thoughts about on having more and more neighbors on our little space rock? Oh, that's a great way to put it. Uh, you know, that is a lot of people. Three, wait, eight billion. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. Three, eight billion people is a lot of people. And as somebody who works with people for people, uh, that that gives me a good sense of job security. But beyond that, these are really interesting numbers here. And and there's uh, they mentioned this rapid slowdown and. In the report, they actually project that there could be a decline in population uh, in some models at the extreme ends. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about through that issue a little bit later. But I'm curious about what your initial reaction to all this was. So I still can't help feeling that, yes, the there is becoming more and more of us, um, but there's still loads of space in, um, on, in the world for people to inhabit. But we do have a habit now of wanting to mainly cluster around certain areas. So your big city populations are largely getting denser and denser rather than us spilling out into uh, broader green pastures, as it were. I'm also not entirely convinced, and this sounds a horrible thing to say, but can we be nice enough to each other when there are more people around us? Um, you know, there's given the volatility of different people, different countries, et cetera, et cetera, um, I do wonder that, you know, the more people you have, does the worse actually our, our global um, global relationships? Do, do, how are they going to survive, and will they thrive or will they decline? Um, but actually, as you mentioned, outside the, outside the, the headline of, of this eight billion number, the article did say that the that the that there is a slowdown in that growth, which I think is um, is I, th I think is is a good thing. But it's interesting that this article automatically ran into. Um, well, how we, you know, how are these younger people, or there's not enough young younger people to care for older people? How are we going to feed each other, et cetera, et cetera? Which is almost a kind of feeling a very selfish attitude to where we're at now, as opposed to where we potentially need to be. But I think we could dig into some of this, and I think there's a lot of meat here for us to uh, to get stuck into. Yeah, and I think um, so. We again, Barry put out the call on social media to for others to comment on this, and I think this first one actually goes very well with some of the points that you were making here. This is from uh, Peter Williams, um, and uh, they they wrote timely tweet. Given I'm surrounded by farmers at the moment with 84 million extra mouths to feed each year, according to the UN, the world of Internet of Things and satellite Internet of Things will no doubt provide efficiency gains, better data, and digital know-how for farmers to exploit and export globally. So do we, do we want to talk about the farming aspect of this and how this might be sort of one good um, way in which we can use technology to leverage it for our benefit as a global society? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, there's so much around the, our basic need. Um, so we we know what uh, when, when you look at uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and things like that, whether you agree with that or not. Uh, but the fundamental, we all we all need to be fed. We all need to have that basic food security, and the main people who provide that are farmers, obviously. Uh, but it also then um, so they they need to generate crops. They need to generate food for the world. So if you look at it at, at, a, at a world scale. The greater so agritech and the, the the technology to allow allow them to be um, more efficient, to be able to understand the every you know the, the whole nature of what what it is that they're doing from um, how effective their their soil is to their the water levels, water pollution, um, or the and or just the nutrients within the soil and the water and how how that's all working. It means they can be massively efficient, but then it also leads into into logistics as well. Because if we can get 
use technology to have better logistics, it means we can get the food where it needs to go at the right time. Because at the moment, we still live in a world where we are throwing so much waste away uh, that at, at all all parts of the, the food production and sales element, that surely we should be able to uh, utilize technology to make um, make the delivery of food more efficient. So we're actually getting fresher food quicker um, and reducing waste. Now, I know um, you know more about uh, the logistic, logistic side of things than uh, than I do. Um, do, you, do you have any sort of insights around that type of thing? We still have a long way to go. <laughs> yes, that's, that's my insight. We, but but that's that's a good thing, right? Because we're thinking about these problems now. And, um, you know, I, I almost want to take a step back and look at sort of the key messages that are coming out of this UN report. And, you know, I've pulled these out. I'm going to read through them and maybe we can dig into ones that we find are interesting. So I'm going to read these kind of verbatim as they have them in the report. And these are high level uh, sort of messages. They have a bunch of other bullet points that are supporting evidence. We're just going to go through the high, high level evidence because otherwise we'd be here for the entire hour reading out those bullet points. So the first <laughs> one here is the world population continues to grow, but pace of growth is slowing down. So that's kind of the first high level point. Yeah. The next one, rates of population growth vary significantly across countries and regions. The next point is levels and patterns of fertility and mortality vary widely around the world. Uh, the next point is the population of older persons is increasing both in numbers and as a share of the total so uh, just, population. Yeah. yeah. So just before you crack on that, and I think this is what is getting people concerned and worried, isn't it? Is the fact that we are living longer and but as we're getting, it's not like we are, uh, the major, majority of us are living longer and staying um, completely um, fit and healthy. We sort of hit, um, the majority of people hit, will hit an age where um, they need more support, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where I think, um, certainly out of the article, there was was them highlighted bits around, okay, we've got this older population. Who's going to look after them? Who's going to basically look after me, you know, in my old age? Um, can, this is almost, then almost where we step up with the, with the technology. We've talked a lot in a, a lot of previous episodes about how technology can support people. Um, so p people to be more independent in their own home, uh, the use of wearables to, to understand your own um, physical and mental well, well-being uh, and things like that. So, is this uh, something that we need to be concerned about? And also, is this only um, a point in time? Because actually, if the population density is getting is, is tailing off, and we might see a population decrease um, overall, it's it's because um, we'll we'll get through. The, it's almost the baby boomer blip, isn't it? Um, that things might come down. So, I some of this feels almost it's not a selfish point, but it is a very moment in time point now that moment in time might last five or ten years um but in the, when you look at the overall um expectancy i'm not sure whether whether that that needs to, that is where the focus needs to be yeah i mean that is what we're trying to focus on now because that is where we're at now you're right there's th this this makeup of of different populations and age of populations will change over time and especially as sort of this growth is decreasing. Uh, you're going to have less in that group uh, as the mortality rate either 
increases or slows down depending on global circumstances, right? We saw a huge mortality rate increase during uh, the the pandemic. So we those are types of things where we can't predict that, but we are seeing the slowdown of growth uh, where the the curve is kind of flattening out, which is really interesting. And it's not somewhere that we've been, uh, at least since we tracked, mm. able to see. Since records began. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're right. This is this is a unique issue where we need to design for that population, but then we also need to consider everyone else that comes after. And we, you're right. We did talk a lot about this in other episodes, and robots is the answer. Uh, go listen to that episode if you want. Really? But uh, th- no, they're not the answer. But the 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 answer is to sort of think about where the population's at now, what digital nativity means for future generations, and how do we design for those uh, countries and cultures who are not digital natives yet? Mm-hmm. That's another question, right? That, that is almost like the, with a couple of the other points that you that you um, highlighted there, the fact that um, rates of population vary significantly across countries and regions. And so you've got booms in, in different areas happening all the time. And, and also the fertil- uh, fertility and mortality vary around the world as well. Are we almost at that piece now where actually the world is um, almost doing that bigger mother nature thing of self-limiting, um, you know, in, in doing doing them things that um, is, is way beyond our comprehension as such, um, which it, it could be. It, it's an interesting to see whether whether the world can self-regulate in that way and just how we deal with yeah. that. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to get back to this list of key messages here. The The, the next, I guess... We have, what, six more or something like that. The The next point here is a sustained drop in fertility leads to an increased concentration of the population at working ages, creating an opportunity for accelerated economic growth per capita. We can get back to that one. The, the next point here is more and more countries have begun to experience population decline. We already talked about that a little bit. Next point is international migration is having important impacts on population trends for some countries. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected all components of population change, including fertility and mortality. Uh, We talked a little bit about that. And then the last point that they make is population data provide critical information for use in development planning. And so why do we, why do we look at um, population? Well, it's exactly for that reason. We, we can start to understand what is happening around us and try to match our approach to better plan for what we suspect is going to happen. So those are the messages. Barry, I like really we could go anywhere from here. Where do you want to jump in? So I think the first bit I I quite like the thought of is it's almost going continuing that argument about understanding um what does this slowdown mean? Um because I think it's quite interesting already that we rather than pick up on the eight billion number, we're actually more concerned about the what happens after that. Um, but where we talked about um, how to care for the elder, elder generation, there was also a lot of discussion around what what is the economic impact. So if you've got le- you know less people working, what do, or if you've got a lot of people, um, we're gonna have we've we've already living in a world where there's where there is less jobs available. The traditional jobs of you know um, mining, the the traditional factory type work is now being replaced by automation in um maybe not in the in the 
big way that a lot of people think, but actually there is a lot more lot more automation going on. There's less people working on production lines. So actually, if we do have this population decrease, um, we're not going to necessarily reduce the um, number of jobs available because they're already reducing. It's more that actually the, maybe the population is now suiting the number of jobs available, which is uh, potential. But do we... Where do you think these future jobs are going to go? Do you think they will disappear or do you think they will just change into something else? I think you should read that other social thought. Uh, okay, let me just scroll back up to <laughs> the social thought. I've lost. Okay, so um, Steph Cormack, who um, was also on, um, provided so, um, a social thought for uh, the, the last episode, um, her response was, oh, that's a lot to think about from automation, influence of AI, aging population, social care to design issues. With my paramedic background, health and social care are big issues. IT for patient tracking, flow and support with clinician decision-making, maybe as a broad start. That's so I want to comment on this. I want to comment on this because you you started to bring up automation and with this population decline, I want to tie this social thought into that thread because both you and Steph are right. There, There is this population decline. And so if you think about that, there's going to be all these jobs and roles in which we perform in society that are no longer going to be fulfilled once the population declines to a certain point and, and perhaps even, you know, reverses from that high level right. number, right? The, not necessarily talking about the growth declining, but the population actually declining, which is an option. Uh, in in the report, there are projections in which there could be a population decline by the year, I don't know, it was like 2050 or 2100. We're talking about long spans of time, but it's important to think about, especially when some of these roles may not be fulfilled if if you do have a population decline. I'm looking through the report right now to see where that projection was, because it was um, it's definitely an interesting one. Uh, if if you are following along with the report, I am looking at uh, page 27. The bottom of that, there's a, sort of a, a projection where at the bottom end, and actually in in some, in, in half the cases, uh, population does decline. And, mm-hmm. and you have sort of this uh, convergence of births and deaths each year that would indicate that there are more people being taken out of this world than being put into this world. That's a really grim way to think about it. But let's think about what that means for human factors. So this is this has massive implications for things like human, AI, robot teaming. When we are going to need to sort of design systems to take care of some of those tasks that are currently being occupied by current by human operators, right? And so if you think about sort of making, um, I don't know, we're already seeing this here in the States, and this is a very high-tech example. And I'm sorry, but this is like just the one at the top of my head. We're seeing <laughs> bots that are flipping burgers, right? And I mean, we even talked about this in, in a previous episode. We're seeing bots that are flipping burgers, and that's to take care of a position that here in the States, we're seeing a population decline with a lot of more people deciding that they do not want children. And, you know, you're not having as much. Uh, we, are, we are a low fertility country is, mm-hmm. is how this um, uh, this report would put it. And so because of that, we're not having enough people to replace um, the jobs that we had before. And so we're building robots to do those things. And we need to figure out how to interact with those robots. And we need to figure out 
where those robots make sense to put in for those types of roles and where they don't make sense. Uh, you know, are you going to have a robot surgeon? See last week, you know, I, I think there's, um, I, I would almost, I would challenge you slightly. Okay. Here we go. We, let's, let's have a slight disagreement. It's not really a big disagreement, but you sort of made the assumption there that we are making, um, robots to flip burgers because there is no people to flip the burgers. Um, but that's, is it? No, not, there's, <laughs> there's more to it not, than that. No, there is, but fundamentally, we, we're making robots flip the burgers, do the surgery, et cetera, et cetera, because we can. And we're finding that, that we can get technology to do these things. And the knock-on effect of that is actually we don't need to employ people to flip the burgers because we can get um, get a robot to do it for us, or be the checkout operator, or be the, et cetera. You know, all of the examples are there. And so that's why I think I'm... I guess it's fairly easy for us to say at this point in time. I'm fairly relaxed about um, population decrease because a natural population decrease, not in any sort of other weird way. Um, you know, in, in, term, in, in terms of this, because that takes us to a whole different conversation. Getting, getting dark um, there, Barry. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean, it's we've already got um, we we a lot of the arguments that we've got around um, a lack of automation at the moment is around the fact that it takes away jobs. And so we've got lots of um, campaigns in the in the UK at the moment. Um, so I don't, I don't know what it's like in the States, but in the UK, there's already campaigns around checkout, op checkout operators when you go to your local supermarket that um, you should go and use the um, the person, the you should go and use the checkout with a person on it. So we safeguard them jobs rather than them put in the, uh, the self-service um, checkouts without... But then there's so many people who then comment and sort of say, well, I prefer using the self-service checkouts because it means I don't have to speak to anybody. I can just get on, do my thing and get out. And and so we sort of artif we sort of try to artificially retain the jobs for the sake of retaining the jobs, not because it's the most efficient way of doing it. And of course, then that is all also then driven down, um, fundamentally driven by profit, isn't it? Because if you don't have to employ people, you don't have all the, um, uh, the hassle around it, the job just gets done. So... There's an element here of how do we make sure that the that the population is well um, is well serviced, well uh, provided for in terms of what it needs and how technology and and by um, implication the human factors around that technology best supports what we're doing, um, rather than almost worrying about do jobs survive because actually jobs in in themselves um, do we create a whole thing around them that we have to have jobs because that's what we've been driven to to believe and one of the drivers behind this article um and we see it in, in a number of other news articles when um when they come out saying there's got potential for population decline has got nothing to do really with whether the population decline is good bad or indifferent it's about the the that there is a smaller population or um, smaller number of youngsters to provide that care or more fundamentally to, to pay the taxes in order to pay the pensions mm -hmm. who are now um, who are coming up elderly and are going to be claiming their pension because the whole system falls over or a whole bunch of people ourselves included have been um, living off this um, growing population and therefore feeling like it's unlimited, unlimited growth, unlimited expansion, we're starting to hit their boundaries. Now, this now takes us quite nicely onto if the um, if the planet is trying to self-regulate with the number of people, it clearly means we need to go to Mars. There you go. That was a link. <laughs> you didn't see that coming. 
No, I didn't. That was that was out of nowhere. Uh, no, you're right, though. I mean, that is if we're talking about society and we're talking about sort of why society is really obsessed with this population decline, it's because people won't get their money when they retire. <laughs> Stay yep. in their jobs for longer. And it's it's um, it's more than that. And it's it's easy. Well, it's not easy for me to sit here and say that because I'll be there someday. Right. And but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you think about it, and it just means that we have to adjust the way in which we think about the world. You're right. We don't have this unlimited uh, fountain of of young people to to, to fund our um uh, our retirement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I think really we just need to think about it from a different societal perspective. And really, that's a that's a really Western way to think about these uh, this population, mm. these population trends, because. There are plenty of societies in which that doesn't happen. And and so um, we need to start thinking about, like, from a global perspective, what this means. And especially the countries in which this is um, this is going to fundamentally change the way that their local state national governments work. Uh, it, it is going to be very interesting to see how policy evolves over time in those other countries. I mean, they brought up China. China has a population decline. What what will the state of China look like in you know 20, 30 years? What policy will be in place in 20, 30 years? I'm not going to comment on any policy that is in place now or in the future. I'm just saying, how will it change? That is something that we have to think about, right? And so from a, from a societal perspective, that is another uh, another consideration. I will say, there's this a, a larger ethical issue that's very relevant here in the states right now is do you encourage population growth in some instances through policy uh they're i mean they've basically taken away a woman's right to choose a person's right to choose uh here in the states uh in some places and that is entirely unfair will that re- result in a population growth in some cases yes um, and it's going to cause financial hardship and burden on those people who don't have that choice. And so, you know, there's, there's the question of if it's, if it's vital enough to the survival of a society, if you implement these policies, uh, that are subtle nudges for people to reproduce and sort of fill in that, um, that gap that is coming with the population growth decline. There's a, there's a variety of ways in which you can do it. That's less invasive than the way that's being done now, such as subtle mm. uh, benefits for, you know, having children or um, support from communities or government that would help you sort of take care of those children. There's ways in which you can do it without taking away people's right to choose. Anyway, soapbox down. Uh, you you wrote another point here, and I'm going to pass it over to you to talk about this point. Yeah, because it's it's not the it's not the opposite of what you're talking about, but actually, I've seen a, a, a large rise, and I, re- I read an article on it um, just yesterday, which was people's perception of what you should be doing as a couple. Should you you know should the ultimate drive be to just reproduce? And it was started off by uh, a couple who uh, moved into a house, moved into quite a large house, four bed house uh, with with two and a half bathrooms. I'm still not entirely sure how you get half a bathroom, um, but the the 
they would talk to the neighbours, and all the neighbours had children, all this sort of stuff, and they were like, oh, you moved to the house, just, oh, you're going to have some kids in that to fill the house up? They were like, well, no, we like the house, I love the space, I've got a couple of offices, we've got this, that, and the other, uh, we're happy just as we are. And we sort of have this, and th their neighbours were almost aghast, and there was a whole bunch of other examples of the same. So we seem to have this innate thing inside us that, that we expect all couples um, to reproduce, um and and in particular obviously we expect all women women to be to want to become mothers um but actually there's so many more people who are not wanting to do that uh, they're either not wanting to be a um a a family with children they just want to be a family just the pair of them um or they just you know they've just got no interest in reproducing we seem to societally and it might be just a, a protection mechanism within ourselves as as a society if you think of society as an organism um but a, but actually, should we be beating down on them in, in the way that we are? I know it might not be um, the, you know, like the societal norm, but, you know, people people want to live in the way that they want to live. Um, and actually, we just let, let them get on with it. Yes, I will echo that. Just let people live their lives. Don't 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 come in with any of this prejudice towards people who don't want to have children. That's their choice. And, you know, like my wife and I chose to have a child, maybe more. We'll see. But, um, you know, if, if we if we only have one, then we are contributing to that population decline. Right. And are you then going to get on people who only have one child because they're not producing the status quo of people? It's it's yeah. it's a. Um, it's a it's a stupid argument, and I, I, I hate <laughs> it. Right. Like, just just let people live their lives. We'll figure out the problems. Later, just let people live their lives the way they want to live them, right? I have friends who don't want to have kids, and it's totally fine. Just let them live their lives. Mm, it's their choice. Stay out of their choices. Anyway, that's that's a theme, right? Just stay out of your choices. Uh, <laughs> I have um, I have other points that I want to bring up about this. Uh, sort of what it means for design, and really what it means when you think about ubiquitous design. This kind of comes back to the shift in population. You know, you have more aging population now but over time that will shift and level out maybe you have to design something that's ubiquitous enough for all populations to use and um you know especially considering those sort of uneven distributions of population that's hard that is hard to do mm -hmm. but it's something that i feel like as the population shifts we have to maybe shift to the design or have an understanding of how things will shift over time to accommodate those things. I think another example of, of something like this, or, or a prime example, I should say, of something like this is transportation. You know, and this is, again, very, fairly Western industrialized society uh, standpoint. I understand that. But if you think about transportation solutions right now, we have, you know, here in the States, we have cars, but then we also have public transportation. And what happens to public transportation when, less and less people take it because you're having less and less uh less you know population shift D do you change the way it works do you pull back on how often the schedules run is that fair to the people who need to get things on time you think about the throughput the bandwidth all that stuff and and that even comes down to the ways in which we build our cities and the ways in which we build our roads for personal private transportation as well. You have to think about all of this stuff. 
and and that is another really interesting point to me is how do you design something for a changing population? Because right now here in the States, what we see is, you know, the, the roads of the 1950s, 1960s are no longer big enough to support all the cars on the road. And so there's constant efforts like you drive through California. There's always a piece of the road that's on in construction trying to widen that bandwidth of cars that are able to get through because you have this growing population. You know, what happens when it actually gets to that sustainable point um, or unsustainable point to where it declines? You know, you you now have these massive roads that are too big for what you need at that point in time. And so these are questions that I have. I don't have solutions, but these are questions that I have <laughs> about how to handle this this change in population distribution over time, especially as it comes to sort of these massive project projects uh, that take up a lot of space on our planet. Right. That's, that's kind of where I'm at. That, that also goes with housing too. Right now, housing is a huge issue in a lot of parts of the world and maybe someday it won't be. Um, and, and what do we do with all that extra land and property, you know, it, without letting it go, fall by the wayside and and become dilapidated huts you know out out in the wilderness like what do you do with that how do you maintain it in case the population does turn around and come back up again all these are questions of how to deal with these types of large infrastructure issues with population distribution you have any thoughts on that (laughs) there is i mean i don't think we're in any risk at the moment of um if we have, if we still go through this boom and then there's basically um, a, a reduction, there is still so many people who are living in abject po- poverty that um, that that will take over these um, take over these uh, houses. So, but there is also, um, if you look on like social media, there's some really good examples about where you know cities and you know actually vast cities have been abandoned. Uh, they've either been developed and then for whatever reason. Um, have been abandoned, and nature has come and take, taken them back. There's some fascinating pictures out there about how that whole ecosystem is working. Um, but I do think you're right. I think there is, we, if we're clever, which invariably means we probably won't do it, um, if we plan and understand what the future could look like and, and deal with that, then we can actually have those, those underpinning structures in place um, or to be able to deal with um, almost the, like I said, the the rise and, and decline of populations, but also the technology in place around automation, around AI, um, to help support the the um, the civilization. Because what we, I think, one of the things that really gives us problems at the moment is the the population densities. That really we get so many people trying to live in really quite small spaces compared to there being, um, you know, more people could let could move out to the countryside if we had the right levels of connectivity. So, you know, even in the, like in the UK at the moment, if you go and live out in, um, in the countryside, um, your level of broadband connectivity is lower. Your ability to get, you know, postal deliveries is not as good. Um, the ability to, you know, if you're cut off because of um, weather or whatever, then, you have a lower quality of life uh, because of not having these things. But if we could provide connectivity, if you could provide all these things to a higher standard, then actually the population density problem doesn't become as big because living more remotely is accessible. Um, the 
the development of public transport, as you quite rightly say, is people use public transport less and less. There is less ability to put on public transport because it doesn't, it is not economically viable. And we are seeing really good examples of that at the moment in the UK as well, because people don't use public transport as much because, um, so take the, take railways. If you wanted to go and take a long journey, it's going to cost you a couple hundred pounds. Um, whereas the same journey by car will cost you maybe around 30 pounds. And so the, the, the cost benefit in that, and that's assuming that you're, you're traveling on your own. As soon as you, as soon as you have two people, then having your own private transport ways makes way more economic sense and timing sense mm-hmm. and um, and all that sort of stuff. So we need to have better public transport systems in place so then people would use them. But it, it's going to take a forward-looking uh, view um, in order to what it could be and not have not basically investing in that. Um, and we're going to need that throughout technologies. Um, so we're going to need really good investment to make it work, to be future-proof and not just trying to catch up with where it should be. Um, the last yeah. bit I, w- I want to dive into is is climate, and because if we've got the um, declining population, obviously we sort of say that climate is um, climate change is human driven, which I think we all um, largely accept. Hence, why we drove the idea of climate ergonomics and things like that. If we've got this problem to solve, but yet we've got less people to solve it, does that mean that the declining population means that the problem of human accelerated climate change will go away i'm not sure it will i think there's just then less people to solve it <laughs> yeah I, I i don't i don't have an answer for you it'll it'll be interesting to see how things do change yeah mm. over time uh I, I just don't know i, I don't think any of us know <laughs> oh. It's, um, but again, so it's going to be something we'd have to try and model. We're going to have to try and understand. We're going to have to try and work out how we're going to deal with it. Um, yeah, and that there's some really big. There's none of these um, simple design issues from a human factors perspective here. These are really big human factors issues that we're going to have to um, have to try and deal with. Yeah, well, in true human factors cast fashion, we've opened a can of worms that we don't intend to pack back up. Uh, you have any other closing thoughts on this one, Barry? Before we uh, move on, um, I think fundamentally, I think this is a—it's a really interesting topic. I think it's something that we have to have um, at the forefront of somebody's mind, not necessarily mine, um, to be able to to try and solve. Because we, you know, we can't just population decline. Whilst I, I don't think it's it's necessarily the problem that people think it is. If we walk into it with our eyes closed, then um, then we we are storing up problems for later on. Yeah, I agree. We got to think about this stuff now, people. All right. Thank you to our patrons this week uh, for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at Futurism for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups and our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories and more. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. 
Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you truly keep the lights on over here and at the lab. Uh, we we really couldn't do this without you, so thank you all so much. Hey, did you know that we have a show sponsor tier uh, where if you want to sponsor the show, get your message heard by thousands of Human Factors uh, psychology and design professionals, you can do that. Uh, we'll we'll read We'll sell out and read a little uh, 150 words for you every week <laughs> if you support us on Patreon at this tier. Uh, and you know what? You'll be featured on our homepage for uh, the duration of your pledge. So that's kind of nice. Um, you also get a permanent link on our page to uh, any any sponsored content that you want to do. So like, I don't know if you're a company that's looking to hire human factors professionals or psychology folks or anything like that. Uh, someone who's selling ergonomic gear. You want to do all that. You can you can help support the show. Uh, we, we really want to make sure that... Um, the people who support the show actually make sense from that perspective. It's not going to be like one of these things where we're just going to let anybody in. You got to be at least somewhat related uh, to the field. Um, anyway, if you're interested in that, uh, you know, go check it out. It's it's an option and um, it would really help us out even more. It like you talk about keeping the lights on. This would this would uh, keep us on for quite some time, I think. This, this tier. Anyway, if you're considering it, go check us out on Patreon. Uh, and with that, I think it's time we get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. That's right. Switching gears and getting to it came from. This is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics that the human factors, psychology, engineering community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, give us a like to help other people find this content. We got three tonight. This first one here is by metric 090 on the user experience subreddit they write should i follow ux guides or my own ideas for ux projects i'm working alone uh, on a project for my ux portfolio and i feel a little lost i've been trying to follow ux guides and steps on what to do next but i don't feel like i'm getting any closer to my goal what the guides want me to do doesn't seem to line up well with ending up with a good final product. I do intend to follow good UX practices, but should I just do what I think is best path to finishing the project or should I follow guides because the people who made them knew what they were talking about? Barry, what is your opinion on this? A guide is a guide, not an instruction manual. Um, fundamentally, the... Right, I'm going to hit the It Depends button because... You're doing this for your UX portfolio and not necessarily for an end client. And so it depends what you're trying to showcase. But fundamentally, if this was if this was me doing this for um in the day job, um, I would be strongly tempted to um you follow your own follow your own nose. Um and I guess I'm saying that with a couple of years' experience under my belt, but you use your own development process you know where you want to get to so develop the plan on how you want to get there and then use the guides to help you along the way but if you, but as i said the guides aren't a process manual they're not um, an instruction uh, a definitive instruction book because the guide uh, ux guides don't or any guides really don't necessarily have exactly what you're trying to do in mind they're a, they're a general guide so 
when they're useful, use them. If they're not useful and they're not helping you get towards your end goal, don't use them. Work, you know, you follow your nose and get there, but don't. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're right. You do have to do a bit of reflection as to why the guide's not working because it's like if you step out of any process, as long as you're justified and you've done the right sort of analysis to say, right, why am I stepping out of process? Document it. Um, understand why you're doing it. As long as you're doing that, then actually you're fine because you might get to the other side of, of, what, of what this chasm is and you're like, ah, actually, now I understand that better. I could actually go and implement something. That's fine. Um, but fundamentally, I think my message is a guide is a guide. It's not an instruction manual. Um, use them when they work and don't use them if they don't. Nick, what about you, you took my answer. You took my answer, Barry. I think that's that's is absolutely that, that's right. right. <laughs> and uh, and um, it's it's uh, very prolific what you just said because it was what I was going to say too. No, I think um, there's there's a couple key things that I want to highlight here. Is that yes, you should absolutely uh, look at it when it makes sense to. But the the thing for me is that in this role, we should really be focused on understanding when to use what. And so I, I, I strongly feel that in sort of a research role, that that is what you should be doing is understanding when to use what method to get the thing out of the study or the research that you want to get out of it is going to make the most sense. And if you do need a guide to, do, to figure out how to do those methods, that's fine. You know, they, they, there's plenty of good best practices on how to perform those methods, but matching the methodology to the uh, to, to the research task or sort of the hypothesis that you want to either confirm or, or um, disprove, then I think you should know roughly what's going to get you there. If you don't, you know, I'm sure there's a guide for it, but again, it will tell you you know, a, sort of a, a rough approximation of how to get there, not necessarily the steps that you need to get there. And it's all about adaptation. You see these guides, you adapt them to your needs. That is a critical skill in which you need uh, to, to be successful, I think, in this role. That's just my two cents. Any other uh, any other last thoughts on that one? Yeah, I guess one more just on the use of, I mean, not just UX guides, but methods in general. Don't feel you have to use them just because everybody else is. Um, because... A, their use cases are different anyway. Um, otherwise, you're not doing a unique, pro unique project. But just because everybody else is using a method doesn't make doesn't make it good. Actually, I've, I've I've been in a case where I've used a very popular method, but then when you look at the research into it, and I, I didn't quite get the answer I wanted, and then when you look deeper into it, I think everybody else has done the same thing. They've used it, not got quite what they wanted, and gone oh actually the method wasn't that good but because everybody then everyone else was using it in their thing then it almost gets a gets a false life so just be critical about what what it is that you're um, using and why you you got to spill the deets on that method in the post show maybe <laughs> yeah all right probably good with a certain amount of framing <laughs> okay all right yeah it'll come with a lot of framing all right this next one here is by greenstain 761 on the human factor subreddit we always love it when we get ones from the human factor subreddit this is a series of questions with a statement as the post. It's all about who you know, not what you know. And the series of questions is, GPA doesn't matter and won't give you an advantage when trying to get hired? Minor in human factors and major in something else? You're more likely to get human factors role than someone with degree in human factors? Is that a fact? Skills don't transfer well to other job roles? If everyone can transition to human factors from a, quote, similar field, why can't human factors personnel transition to the fields that it's comprised of? So 
this is a statement that I'm going to ask you uh, if you agree or disagree with. Is it all about who you know and not what you know? (laughs) Well, it depends, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, I think I've always sort of said that certainly in the UK, I think that, uh, and I, I think it's fairly true that Human factors is a small domain, um, and you are within largely one degree of freedom. You might not know specific individuals, but you almost always know a common a common individual. Um, so, and that is almost a vetting process in of itself. That actually, if you if you don't know anybody common um, at all, then that's almost certainly for me. That's that it's 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 almost a bit of a flag. Um, maybe not if you're a brand new, say, graduate in into the role, but if you if you if you've been around for a while, and we don't know anybody in, in the same, or say in in the same spheres, then that acts as a bit of a flag to me. Um, but equally, you know, if you've been mentored and stuff like that, so it, but that doesn't necessarily give you an advantage in being in being more capable. Capable, I find capable people do tend to rise to the top. So. It's it's a mixture. Yeah, here let me let me help break this down. It's an advantage if you know people. Uh, it mm-hmm. is a massive advantage. Although I don't think it's necessarily not what you know, because I think that is a huge part of it. I like. Here's the thing. I wouldn't stick stick my neck out for you if I knew that you couldn't do the job at least in some capacity. Exactly. Um, we, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with somebody who's like annoyed that their boss was hiring, you know, all these people uh, that were their friends. Um, and yeah, I would be, too, if they didn't if they couldn't perform the job. And that's where I'm saying, like, you know, if I know someone is in a sort of tangential field, but can do research methods or understands the domain enough to try to apply it and is competent and capable, then why would I not hire them if I'm familiar with their work? So. Yes, it's a huge advantage, but I think there is a lot of that domain knowledge that you need to know uh, in order to get halfway there, if that makes sense. So people aren't just going to stick out their neck for you willy nilly in a lot of cases because their reputation's on the line as well. Um, yeah, just to jump in on that, because the opposite is true as well, isn't it? If um, mm-hmm. if you're not very good, this is a small domain, and um, like say, if if people ask for a reference, well, it you know. You don't want to be seen to be giving out bad references. You do, you, and we we don't want to see the um, um, our discipline um, suffer for having people who can't do the job. Um, so yes, if you're not very good at, at what you're doing, or you're trying to make claims that you you can't stack up to, then um, yeah, it it is. We we do know each other, and and people do talk. So. Yeah, much much like fertility rates and mortality rates, there is an interaction between skill and who you know. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I so wondered where you were going there. <laughs> <laughs> Tying it back to the story. All right, we got one more here. This is from the user experience subreddit. Metric090 writes, is it okay to assume certain aspects about a user based on other aspects? break it down a little bit more for you. Is it okay to take into account other studies that have been done on groups of people to make assumptions about those groups? For example, is it okay to assume that younger people are not willing to wait as long as older people? Barry, what are your thoughts on this? Can you make assumptions based on other things about a user group? I I would say yes, um mainly because in my domain my experience my experience the ability to get hold of an entire cohort of people um uh, 
particularly in the defense world, particularly in the search critical world, is almost few and far between. It's hard to get the full range of people that you that you want to engage with. So in many ways, you end up making you end up making assumptions, and as long as you can justify those assumptions and um, document them, then generally it's it's okay um, to allow you to um, to fulfill that data. Whether that as long, I mean, the only caveat I'll put around that is making sure it's around secondary data, almost not not the primary um, uh, primary investigation. So you know you you can't if you're doing an investigation you can't just then go and nick somebody else's data to to do your your primary answer but if you're trying to you know fill out the um the background of why people do things then then yeah learn from learn learn from other people that's why them studies have been done yeah i i agree i think this is this not the per, uh is this not the purpose of a persona mm, exactly uh, because because you you are forming assumptions based on a subset of users that you are then using to make assumptions about a, a wider set of users that fit that profile. Um, and, and you can certainly go off and, and look at some um, anthropometrical data. You can also look at sort of societal uh, sociology studies on certain groups of people that you can make assumptions on in psychology as well. A lot of times in these scientific articles, they define their population that they're looking at, and especially as it relates to generalizability. Right. And so you have to take that into account as you read studies on these certain populations that are being researched. You know, it's not going to be applicable to the general population unless it is one of those studies. But for groups of people, yes, pay attention to how they define the generalizability and what populations they're talking about. Um, you know, are they are they saying this applies to college students <laughs> because that's who they sampled? Uh, a lot of times that's what you find. Right. Is, is it generalizable to the larger public? Maybe. Um, is it, you know, certain um, uh, socioeconomical status, those types of things? Yes, you can you can absolutely make assumptions uh, of groups of people, groups of people, not individuals. Make sure that is clear. Groups of people, because once you start uh, sort of making assumptions about individuals, that is then prejudice. So. Take that, yeah. take that, and shove it. Anyway, that. Well, let's just get into the. I don't know. I don't have a good. I don't have a good. I'm feisty today. I don't have a good ending. Let's just uh, let's just get into this last part of the show. One more thing, Barry. What's your one more thing this week? I'm excited this week because coming up on the 29th of August, NASA is launching their Artemis rocket, and just how cool is that? That's basically the the first major step for NASA to be able to then, you know, looking to set things up on the moon and then going back to, uh, going back to going to Mars and things like that. So I just think it's really, really exciting time. There's also a very slightly selfish reason that we, uh, about 18 months ago, we interviewed um, people from the Orion project on NASA, which is obviously part of the overall Artemis thing. Um, So it's just really, really exciting to see that they're going to have an uncrewed mission. Um, launch on on the 29th and as long as that window doesn't shift i'm going to be glued to the tv watching that because i think it's going to be brilliant oh i was hoping you'd say i'm going to watch it live because that would be oh that that would be something seeing some of the photos coming out people are going to take photos of it because it's obviously it's all they've done the 10 hour transition to to launch pad and it's all it's all set up it just looks um Read. I don't. There is a difference, I think, and I don't know why, between when NASA puts up a, con, uh, a rocket and then when like SpaceX and the other ones have put up rockets. We sort of. I don't know why, but we expect the SpaceX ones to do well now, 
that's kind of a it's a done thing. But when NASA are sort of rolling something out, it's so it kind of looks a bit old school, and but it, it looks like it's going to do something like really good. So yeah, I'm I, it's just going to be weird. Well, my one more thing this week. Um, I have I have two here, but I'm only going to talk about one because one will likely have more uh, results after next week. We'll see. The the one I'm going to talk about here is that there's some um, erratic velocity in in the pacing of my work lately. Um, and it's been really interesting to observe because it's been fast, 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 and now it's slow, slow, slow. And you'll find this is typical for a lot of uh, folks is that you'll have some downtime um, followed by some like really frantic work, followed by some more downtime. And it's just, I, I wanted to comment on sort of that erratic pace. I think it's just interesting because it's nice when you actually get a breather. And like, I had some time to make the show notes today and I hope the show, uh, I hope it, um, I hope it showed. I hope it showed. But anyway, uh, that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about human factors issues around, uh, let's say, certain aging subpopulations, I'll encourage you to go listen to episode 251, Grandma, Relax, It's Just a Robot, where we talk about robots in aging population homes. Uh, comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, become a show sponsor. Just kidding. You can always leave us a five-star review. That is free for you to do right now. Go do that. Uh, tell your friends about us. That is also free for you to do and really helps us grow. If you want to and have the financial means to, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, like I said, that really does go forward to making sure that the lights are turned on over here at the show and at the lab. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our uh, listeners go find you if they want to talk about baby making? <laughs> what do you read for a bit for the first time? Great. Uh, you can find me on Twitch. I know the socials at Basil underscore K. Or come listen to some of our interviews at 12 or 2 on the 1202 Human Factors podcast, which is 1202podcast.com. I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> As for me, I meant to change it. I, I'm, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. What an ending. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.